A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. New Scientist Weekly is brought to you in partnership with the Financial Times. The FT brings you stories that matter, not only in the world of business and finance, but also covering stories in science, technology, climate change and more. Find out more at ft.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm podcast editor at New Scientist. And I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist news editor. Joining us today is New Scientist journalist Graham Lawton. Hello, Graham. Hello. And also from Yorkshire, we've got the poet laureate Simon Armitage reading one of his poems. Not just any old poem, but one specially written in response to the coronavirus crisis called Lockdown. We've also got Graham telling us about the small matter of a total change in the understanding of the evolution of our species. And we're going to hear about an artificial intelligence that can read minds. But first, Penny, with the latest on the pandemic. Penny, I saw the WHO are forecasting that any day now we'll have a million confirmed cases and over 50,000 deaths, right? Yeah, sadly, we're really close to that now. So as of this morning, the 2nd of April, the number of confirmed cases worldwide was over 930,000. And of course, we know that the actual number of cases has already been much, much higher than that. Um, It's just that not everyone gets tested. Deaths this morning were at over 47,000. And with many countries, including the UK, reporting hundreds a day, that number's going up really fast now. Okay, uh, we've got some questions here, Penny, that people are still asking about the pandemic. So let's fire some at you. Well, actually, before that, what's the question you're hearing most from people? So this week for me, it's undoubtedly been uh, surfaces and specifically food. Like, what should you do with your shopping? Do you need Mm. to wash your groceries? How much do you have to worry about your posts? That kind of thing. The thing to note here is that the virus can be detected on touch surfaces for for at least several days. But we don't really know um, how infectious it is yet. So it doesn't really hurt to be careful, but at the same time, you also need to be careful about what you might be using to clean your food. You certainly shouldn't be using anything like bleach. That's very dangerous. And a lot of people have been trying to sort of uh, use household cleaners and antibacterial sprays to decontaminate their shopping. Um, But most antibacterial disinfectants won't do anything to the virus. So you'll just end up uh, ingesting antibacterial chemicals for no reason, really. So I'm still sort of uh, figuring this one out for myself. I I have to say I'm currently giving things like satsumas a bit of a dunk in some washing up liquid and then rinsing them because we know that um, it's a fatty virus. So in theory, the detergent should should help kill that. 
but mostly really um, you're not going to be able to clean every nook and cranny of your shopping so uh, the best advice is to wash your hands regularly when you're especially when you're cooking so whenever you touch packaging take your food out the packaging throw the packaging away and wash your hands which is quite tedious but that's kind of the best practice and it's also worth remembering of course that um, the amount of virus on a surface declines every day so if you've had something for three or four days the risk is probably very small and and with all of this the risk is going to be much lower than actually being in a shop and breathing in virus so there's a whole spectrum of risk here and I I think there's a real risk that we all get too anxious like if you go down the road of thinking that everything that comes into your house has to be sterilized the levels of anxiety associated with that are, are going to be unbearable yeah I mean, I I heard someone saying that if you're outside and you answer your phone, your phone is immediately contaminated and you must sterilise it when you get back in. So, you know, obviously that's completely wrong. Um, Mm. But, you know, people can start becoming really over anxious about this kind of thing. Yeah, it's a tough time, especially for people who have um, obsessive compulsive disorder about things like contamination. Um, mm. it, it's really hard. Um, it, the balance is you're, you're never going to eliminate all risk. Um, so it's just about what are the sensible steps to eliminate most risk. And, and that's really hard to do. About people who are classified as high risk, who should be self-isolating for 12 weeks? What's the advice here? So there's been so much confusion about this. Um, So you may remember Prime Minister Boris Johnson a few weeks ago said in a daily briefing that uh, the government may soon ask pregnant women and anyone over the age of 70 to self-isolate for 12 weeks. But I don't think there was really any follow-up to that. It was just Mm. sort of floated as a possibility. And and so that means lots of people are confused about what they're supposed to be doing. So in the UK, as things currently stand, there are people who are deemed extremely high risk. And these people have been written to and asked to self-isolate for 12 weeks. Um, so that includes people with certain cancers, people who've received organ transplants, people with severe lung disease, and specifically pregnant women with heart conditions. And they've been asked to really eliminate contact with anyone. So they, they can't go out shopping for essentials. They, they can't go out to do their daily exercise. It's total lockdown. Mm. The, the situation's less clear for people who are sort of deemed vulnerable. So that's the over 70s, pregnant women more generally. I would also include people with heart disease and diabetes in that group too. The advice so far is, is quite vague there. It's essentially you, you have to social distance like the rest of the country, but it, it's wise to take the rules especially seriously. So um, you can exercise outside and in theory you can go to the shops, but really you want to kind of be minimising that as much as possible. And it's, it's kind of unclear what's expected of us there okay uh what are we learning about how the viral load how the amount of virus you're exposed to determines whether or not you get sick or how sick you actually get Yeah, I've been really interested in that this week because I've seen quite a lot of discussion on social media sort of suggesting that the more you're exposed to, the more virus, the sicker you end up getting. Um, And so that would be really bad news for healthcare workers, of course, because they get exposed to a lot more. And also, perhaps if you were the last member of your household to come down with the virus, potentially you would then get it far worse than everyone else that you live with. Um, We don't actually know if that's the case yet. So we do know that something like this does happen for flu so it's feasible but in the case of COVID-19 the studies so far have had sort of conflicting results so all we really know at this point is that the more virus you're exposed to the more likely you are to catch it full stop but we don't really know if that means you'll get worse symptoms or or not to be honest. 
Right. So the the reason that uh, we're hearing one in four NHS workers may have been exposed to it or at least is self-isolating because of potentially having symptoms, um, that's just because they're more likely to have been exposed, not necessarily that they've had more of the actual virus Yeah, as far as we know at this point, um, obviously people working in the health service are are being that their exposure risk is much, much higher. So um, yeah, that that sounds the most likely. Okay. How long do people who have it continue to be infectious? So it might be quite a while, actually. Um, At the moment, uh, the World Health Organization advises that you self-isolate for 14 days um, after you develop symptoms. The UK has gone for something shorter, seven days after symptoms start and until the fever is gone. Um, But there are studies that suggest you may continue to shed the virus, so there's still virus coming out of you, um, for weeks after you feel better even. So at this point, it's still unclear, but uh, we don't know yet that once you feel better you're safe to meet other people and you can't infect anyone it's definitely feasible that you could remain infectious for a little while yet although you're probably not quite as infectious as as when you had symptoms or even actually before because infection rate seems to peak you seem to be most infectious just before your symptoms come on right Um, and what do we know yet about whether or not you can be infected twice yeah, so um, unfortunately, um, we, we don't know. And it, it's very possible that you might be able to get infected twice. There have been some reports of this happening. And it's hard to know with those individual cases, whether those might have been false positives on the second test, or maybe they hadn't actually really recovered yet. So the same infection was still being measured. But we do know that from there's there's already several other coronaviruses that um, circulate generally um, in human populations and, and cause things like colds. And those seem to induce some immunity but it's not very long lasting and you know in some cases you can get infected with the same virus within a year so it's possible that this coronavirus um, even if it does induce some sort of immunity it might be short-lived and and we just don't know yet and and that's a crucial question because it's clearly going to influence what we do next uh, once a lot of people have had the virus. Right another thing we're still hearing a lot of is will it or won't it die out in the summer? So my feeling on that is probably not. Uh, We've seen that the virus can spread in Singapore, Australia, um, and the more tropical, the warmer areas of China. Um, So heat and humidity definitely isn't enough to stop this virus. Um, We possibly might see a dampening down um, in the Northern Hemisphere as we tend to have slightly better immune systems in the summer. Maybe not, though. I'm not getting out as much, so my vitamin D isn't as topped up as it should be. But really, we can't actually bank on changes in season to help us out much here right now it's time for our semi-regular feature on tips for maintaining a healthy mental and physical state during this crisis and the isolation that comes with living in lockdown rowan what have you got yeah so a couple of weeks ago we talked on the show about what we were doing to occupy ourselves and stay healthy and i wanted to return to this with some poetry what i like about poetry is the way it forces you to contemplate and to think in a different slower way a more reflective way and that's the sort of thing we need at the moment and i saw that simon armitage the poet laureate had written a poem called lockdown which seemed perfect for what i wanted so i asked him if he'd read it out for us and he sent us this recording he recorded it in his garden in west yorkshire and you can hear the birds singing in the background Uh, so off you go simon lockdown and i couldn't escape the waking dream of infected fleas in the warp and weft of soggy cloth 
by the tailor's hearth in ye olde eum. Then couldn't unsee the boundary stone, that cockeyed dice with six dark holes, thimblefuls of vinegar wine purging the plagued coins. Which brought to mind the sorry story of Emmett Siddle and Roland Tor, star-crossed lovers on either side of the quarantine line, whose wordless courtship spanned the river till she came no longer. But slept again, and dreamt this time of the exiled Yaksha sending word to his distant wife on a passing cloud, a cloud entranced by the earthly map of camel trails and cattle tracks, streams like necklaces, fan-tailed peacocks, painted elephants, embroidered bedspreads of meadows and hedges, bamboo forests and snow-hatted peaks, waterfalls, creeks, the hieroglyphs of wide-winged cranes, glistening lotus flowers after rain, the air hypnotically see-through, rare, the journey a ponderous one at times, long and slow, but necessarily so. That was Simon Arbitage, poet laureate and professor of poetry at Leeds University, reading his poem Lockdown. Thanks, Simon, for sending that in. Simon says poetry is by definition consoling because it asks us to focus and be contemplative. He says just in poetry's nature, in the way it asks us to be considerate of language, it also asks us to be considerate of each other and the world. In the relationship between thoughtful language, something more thoughtful occurs. How are you two coping with social distancing at the moment? Penny? I'm doing a lot of phone calls, a lot of video chats and um, just to relieve stress, quite a lot of exercising in my living room, Mm. to be honest. Graham, what's your strategy at the moment? So I'm trying to commune with nature as much as I can. My monthly column this month is about how contact with nature is really good for our physical and mental well-being, but how being in lockdown deprives us of our normal uh, dose of nature. And uh, we know actually that surrogate nature, which is looking at pictures of nature, watching nature videos, even listening to birdsong, is almost as good as the real thing. So I've been listening to an amazing thing on BBC Sounds called The Peregrine, which is a book by J.A. Baker, a, a natural history class which David Attenborough is reading and that's a real kind of surrogate way of getting back into nature and it makes me feel an awful lot better. Oh, I'm going to check that out. Great tip, thanks. Time out. We want to take some time to tell you a bit more about our sponsor, The Financial Times. Each week we bring you up to date with the latest scientific and medical developments relating to coronavirus but if you're interested in the bigger picture, the FT does a fantastic job at making sense of exactly how the pandemic is shaking up the worlds of business, finance and industry. This week, the FT also provides critical analysis on whether the House of Commons should sit virtually during lockdown. It also looks at whether, in some countries, isolation measures could actually be worse than the disease itself. Plus, Marie Kondo explains how you can spark joy in your work as you're working from home. Hmm. The FT also has a daily podcast called the FT News Briefing. Recently, they did a fascinating deep dive into why manufacturers are finding it so hard to mass-produce ventilators. There's a lot of misinformation swirling around out there, so as one of the world's most trusted news organisations, the FT is an essential addition to your daily reading. Join the debate at ft.com. Now let's turn to the origin of humanity. So... 
Most of us have heard of the out of Africa idea. That's the story that we evolved in East Africa and then swept out of the continent and became the dominant ape worldwide. But that's starting to look quite shaky, isn't it, Graham? Very, very shaky. I mean, you're talking about this thing called the recent out of Africa hypothesis, which, as you say, supposes that humans evolved in a small patch of East Africa in the Rift Valley about 160,000 years ago and then became what's called behaviourally modern, which means modern minds, modern behaviour, modern symbolic behaviour particularly, about 70,000 years ago, and then kind of swept out of Africa and conquered the world. And for about 30 years, that's been the mainstream uh, view of the origin of our species. Um, And one of the aspects of that is that as we swept through the world, we replaced all the archaic humans, so Neanderthals and relic populations of things like Homo erectus that they encountered on the way. That idea became the orthodoxy so quickly that it's easy to forget how radical it was at the time. It sprang out of genetic data in the 1980s, and at the time genetics was really a new way of trying to understand human prehistory. And the traditional uh, archaeology and the Stones and Bones crew did not like it at all, and there was a lot of resistance to it. But then the Stones and Bones started to back it up, so it became the kind of accepted theory of human evolution. So what's upsetting this neat view now? So this established idea has been challenged, you might even say completely virtually overturned by more genetic data, but ironically by new fossil data. It all goes back to the 1960s to a bearing mine in Morocco called Jebel Irhud, and that has become a, a name that's as familiar to paleoanthropologists now as things like Omo Kibish and Lucy. In 1961, miners in that cave discovered the... Uh, a human skull in the filled-in remains of a limestone cave. It wasn't considered a big deal at the time because it was dated wrongly. Um, But 60 years on, it's acquired this very special place in the story of human evolution. So the thing about the Jebel Irhud skull is that it looks remarkably modern. There are certain diagnostic features of a modern human skull, a flat face, a spherical brain case, fine features no brow ridges, and a chin. The chin is really crucial here. Mm. So it was originally dated to about 40,000 years ago, which would make it nothing particularly interesting. But it's recently been reassessed and found to be a staggering 320,000 years old. So here's an essentially modern human skull in a corner of northwest Africa, thousands of kilometres away from the Rift Valley. So it's totally out of place and out of time, according to the recent out-of-Africa hypothesis. And that has led to a complete reappraisal of lots of other enigmatic schools from all over Africa, South Africa, East Africa particularly. And it turns out there were many, many more or less modern-looking humans right across the continent a third of a million years ago. And clearly that's incompatible with the recent out-of-Africa hypothesis. And actually now the genetics has come on board now and points in the same direction. And what this really means is that humans do not really have a single point of origin, but a scattered and dispersed one all over Africa, spanning vast amounts of time and starting much earlier than we thought. I mean, obviously it's important we understand our origins as well as we can. Does that change how we should think of ourselves now as a species? I think it does somewhat, because the recent out-of-Africa thing posited this kind of tribe of modern humans that kind of popped out of evolution and then took over the world uh, quite recently. And I think the new perspective is that we have a much deeper, much richer, much more behaviourally modern history going back, way, way back, 300,000 years ago, and that we're also a mosaic species, so rather than there being this kind of all-conquering single tribe, there were kind of tribes from all over Africa that came together and into form this kind of mosaic human species. 
and it, it, it just gives a, diff- a completely different perspective on our time on Earth. So does that mean it's time to just throw out this out-of-Africa idea? No, not at all. Uh, we still know that humans came out of Africa and colonised the world. Um, it seems to have happened earlier than we thought, so there's now things like uh, a skull in Greece that looks like a modern human skull 210,000 years ago. That looks like There looks to be modern human material in China 180,000 years ago. But it's also changing how we thought about humans sweeping around the world and replacing everything else that it encountered on its way. We now know that humans interbred with Neanderthals and the more recently discovered Denisovans and another hominin that we don't know, uh, we don't have any fossils of, another hominin that we don't have fossils of called hominin X. So the whole story of how we conquered the world has completely changed, except that we came out of Africa. That's our sci-fi alert, which you will know by now, sounds when we have a story in the magazine that has already been written about or predicted by science fiction. Rowan? Yeah, this is the discovery that Mars used to have not just liquid water, but hot springs. Uh, Mars used to be much warmer than it is now, and planetary scientists have been looking at images of Mars and comparing them with images of similar terrain on Earth. And they found areas inside a crater where it looks like water has seeped up from underground. Uh, so if these are ancient hot springs, they could have been great places for life to evolve, uh, just because hot springs are also nice places for life on Earth. There are a few other Mars stories this week. Another is the finding that the planet's North Pole seems to contain a surprising amount of frozen carbon dioxide, about ten times that found at the South Pole. Uh, there's another report that shows that in the mornings on Mars, you get a very thin layer of frost on the ground. All this is coming from uh, a now cancelled meeting in Texas, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, cancelled, of course, because of coronavirus. But it's all adding to our understanding of the water cycle and the atmosphere of Mars, which we need to suss out in order to tell us what kind of resources there are on the planet for when we go there. Uh, Knowing how to extract water from the ground will be vital for Martian explorers. And that, of course, is the sci-fi reference. There's absolutely loads of stuff set on Mars, of course. Uh, But for me, the choice has to be Kim Stanley Robinson's epic Mars trilogy. Uh, This is about the first humans on Mars and the subsequent settlement and terraforming of the planet. Uh, The books are Red Mars, Blue Mars and Green Mars. Very recommended. Our next story could also have been the sci-fi story of the week. It's the development of an artificial intelligence that has the ability to read minds. What it does is analyse patterns of brain activity and translate these into sentences. We heard a few weeks ago on the show about using brain scanners to ask yes-no questions to patients, potentially those with brain injuries. But this goes even further because it can deduce far more detail from just looking at a person's brain activity. Yeah, so what it is is that the researchers had four women who have epilepsy, so their brains already have electrodes attached to monitor them for seizures and they measured the signals made by the brains of these women as they spoke. Uh, The breakthrough relies on new kinds of electrodes that can measure much more about the brain and new kinds of artificial intelligence to make sense of the data. Uh, It's similar to how you get machine translation between languages. So if you want to translate from French to English, you might have a computer that has listened to speech and translations over and over again and found patterns that always hold. So if the machine... I'm going to try some French here... If the machine hears the sentence j'aime mon chien, it feeds that into its neural network and comes out with I love my dog as a translation. But instead of listening to the French words, this machine listens directly to the brain signals as someone is thinking 
I love my dog, but in a similar way it comes out with I love my dog. The researchers used an AI technique called deep learning to measure the brain signals and find patterns in the mass of data and the algorithms learned to identify regularly occurring patterns that could be linked to aspects of speech, such as vowels or consonants. These patterns were then fed into a second neural network which tried to turn the words into a sentence. What I like is that the network learns to associate brain activity with certain words and sentences. And um, the example they give is that the AI was able to understand that the word Turner is always or almost always likely to follow the word Tina. (laughs) Yeah, well, Turner is always going to follow Tina. It's simply the best. Better than all the rest. I can't believe you made me say that. Uh. (laughs) it's very impressive but the ai does actually require you to have an invasive brain implant which isn't ideal and it can only recognize around 250 words so far they've not been able to scale up to a larger vocabulary yet because this massively increases the error rate of the algorithm the more words you have the more possible sentences you can make with them and it becomes harder to sort through all of those possibilities and work out which ones are most likely in any given circumstance But it's still a really useful start, and 250 words is a good amount to have if you can't talk at all. Um, So the team behind the work point out that there are many people with neurodegenerative disorders that that stop people from being able to speak, and people who have had strokes or or in locked-in syndrome also have difficulty communicating. So people are probably wondering how many words an average person knows, and it's a lot more than 250, it's about 350,000. So I think we're still beating the AI, but it's a good start. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com. If you would like to subscribe, we're running a special offer for podcast listeners where you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Yep, so enter POD20 at checkout on the website to get your subscription discount. Uh, Do also please listen to our sister podcast, The Big Interview, uh, available on our website and all the usual podcast platforms. This week, we've got a fantastic interview with climate activist Greta Thunberg. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com and let us know what's keeping you entertained in this time of international lockdown. New episodes go live each Friday. Do subscribe to our show at the usual place you get your podcasts. And until next time, goodbye. Take care. Bye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. 